Welcome back to the Build Podcast. I'm Blake Bartlett, a partner here at OpenView. If you've been following along this season, you know that we're here to figure out the new customer journey and what that means for SaaS. Today, we hear from Howie Liu, co-founder and CEO of Airtable. In the PLG world, we all know and love Airtable. It's an amazing platform that is leading the low-code, no-code movement. And Airtable has been valued by the world's best VCs at well over a billion dollars, making it one of the hottest PLG unicorns out there today. In today's episode, Howie walks us through the hype and substance of the low-code, no-code movement, the challenges of building a mass market platform with a hugely diverse customer base, and how to nail a self-service strategy in the enterprise. All that and more on this episode of The Build Podcast. So let's dive in with Howie Liu. All right, well, Howie, thanks so much for joining us here today on The Build Podcast. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. So we're gonna jump into all things Airtable and how you guys approach both product and, and growth and a number of other topics. But I'm curious just to sort of get your take. I'm certainly very familiar with Airtable and, and many people in the tech world are, but for the uninitiated, what is Airtable and how do you describe it to somebody who hasn't heard of it before? Sure, so the surface answer you get if you just kind of Google Airtable, try it out, is you know if you're using a spreadsheet for anything other than number crunching, it should instead be an Airtable. So Airtable looks like a spreadsheet, behaves like a spreadsheet, but it actually does a lot more and it's better for any kind of organizational workflow oriented use cases. The longer answer is that what we're really doing is creating this new layer of data based workflows. And we're really creating this application platform for teams, for groups within any company to build their own useful business process using an end user interface that feels like a spreadsheet but is actually powered by this relational database and all of these other kind of powerful pieces that we give you to build a useful application. And I'm sure that over time, the use cases and the sophistication of what users are doing with the platform has evolved, both as people have gotten more familiar with this way of, of doing things, but also as you guys have, have built more products. So I'm curious, like, where are some of the sort of starting use cases that I'm sure were, were more simple? And then where have people taken it today? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, in the early days of Airtable, when we first launched, I think we got a lot of people who came in and A, kind of knew what a database was already. There was a lot of people who had maybe used FileMaker Pro. There was actually a, a product that Apple owned called Bento, which was actually a personal database for kind of hobbyist use cases. You could organize wine bottles or collections in it. And I, I think it's now defunct, but a lot of people who use Bento came over to Airtable. And there were just a lot of consumer use cases mixed in with business ones, right? Like people were literally doing personal organization in Airtable, almost like a, a more structured, powerful version of what you might do with a Pinterest board. And I think that, that over time, you know, to your point, as, as we added more functionality into Airtable, and also I think as the world kind of changed around us in terms of behaviors of people within the enterprise, especially, I think, you know, Slack launched after we had started working on Airtable, but before we launched our product and certainly watching how enterprises have adopted them and, and many other bottoms up products have shaped the world and shaped behaviors of, of people who actually go out and build within companies, within you know, kind of the B2B environment, more professional use cases on Airtable. And I've heard of some of those advanced use cases, but you have people running like manufacturing facilities and a ton of real-time data flows and things like that, correct? Yeah, for sure. I mean, a lot of times I don't, I don't even think people think of the words data flow. I think it's an accurate depiction for folks looking at the space from a, an investor, kind of a higher level lens. But I think a lot of people just think of this as like, 
the structured work that they actually do day to day. And so, you know, you have like these collaboration tools, communication tools out there like Slack, Zoom, which obviously help you just communicate and, and do meetings, but that's not actually the bulk of your work, like the structured work that you do. So whether it is a manufacturing process, like you described, it could be a video production process, you know, kind of managing the release or the production of specific content for a media company, or even something like textile sourcing within a retail fashion company. These are all kind of the structured processes that actually represent real work and needs kind of a better home than just a messy set of spreadsheets or just ad hoc emails back and forth, or even worse, just like people depending on tapping on the shoulder or meeting in person to get updates or to get a source of truth. And going back to the beginning, where did you come up with the idea for Airtable and why was this the product to build? Yeah, so it's funny. I started a different company before Airtable. It was fairly short-lived, not particularly notable, except for one thing, which is we ended up getting acquired or basically acqui-hired by Salesforce. And I got to spend a year and a half there. It was just an immense learning opportunity. So many great leaders there who, who I got to learn from and see the world in a different way than probably most early 20-something-year-olds think about the software world. And namely, it crystallized in my mind a vague concept that was already something I was thinking about before even Salesforce, which is what if you could make a way for people to actually kind of build software applications, right, without having a program? What if you took all the power of making apps, which I experienced just by having lots of time on my hands in high school and in college to go and tinker and learn how to program and build? But what if you could give that same transformative power to people who didn't have all the time to, to go and learn how to actually code? And at Salesforce, what I recognized or what I got to learn was just that this large class of useful software applications are, are really nothing much more than a relational database that the end user, that the customer has defined for their specific need, whether it's manufacturing or a financial services use case or a product marketing use case. But there's a database that represents the data structure of what they're trying to build or what they're trying to do. And then, you know, there's like an interface on top of that and then some other customizations. But that's really what software is, is you've got your data model and you've got this other stuff, interface, logic, et cetera, on top of it. And I think to me, it just kind of crystallized this idea that you could distill the act of creating useful software into these different layers or building blocks. And our goal in starting Airtable was really to do that on this kind of massive ubiquitous scale by consumerizing that experience, making it really, really, really easy for end users to actually grok, not unlike how the Macintosh took all of these really powerful computing concepts and then kind of made them easy for an end user to actually just start using and interacting with without having to read a big manual or get lots of training. Yeah, and, and I have to imagine as you're referring to it, you know, your time at Salesforce, the bigger the company, the more you realize that so many processes inside large organizations, yes, they're sort of built on tech, but it's spreadsheets, email, checklists, and stuff that is fundamentally manual. And if you could find a way to automate that, there's just a huge opportunity there to just take so much manual effort out of the equation. Absolutely. I think it's automation and also having a source of truth, a single source of truth for a lot of these disparate workflows. And the problem with spreadsheets is that often you don't just have one perfect interrelated spreadsheet that has everything that you care about and need. I mean, for one, it only supports text and numbers, right? And not to mention, there's only one really way to interact with and to look at the content in a spreadsheet. And so in practice, you get all this messiness, you get out of date data, people don't actually maintain the same spreadsheet, there's multiple versions or, or 
multiple even like pieces of data that are stored in separate places. So I think that centralization of data also matters. I do want to call out that I think another learning from Salesforce was not only just kind of seeing from within how kind of a large and successful company was run itself, but also the fact that Salesforce is a platform and is basically such a database building platform itself. And not only that, but they'd actually been doing really, really well and, and probably still are with their basically version of the platform that isn't sold as CRM, but it's just sold as a platform directly at the time, kind of labeled as force.com. I think now it's kind of rebranded to Salesforce App Cloud. But that product was basically kind of like what I'm describing as the similar vision for Airtable, but they were catering really to a higher end more expensive, but more powerful set of use cases. And, you know, in some sense, we were trying to take that and just make it really end user accessible. Yeah. And, and I think the way that you you described what Airtable is and, and what your vision is for what it will enable in the workforce today made a lot of sense to me. I think what people describe it as today and what they sum it down as is, well, that's part of the low code, no code movement, right? And that obviously became a, a word that was used quite often in the last year or so. We might be at peak low-code, no-code sort of usage <laughs> in tech press. Well, I hope it's not the peak. Uh, I hope it's not the peak. <laughs> but, but in terms of using the term, it's, it certainly has become super popular. And, and I'm curious, what do you think about that? Is that kind of how you thought about it back you know, a handful of years ago when you were first starting Airtable? And, and what do you think is the hype versus the substance of this low-code, no-code thing? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so the funny thing is that the word low code kind of existed for a long time, right? And certainly by the time we started Airtable, low code was an understood concept, but it was just a much more arcane one. It was kind of, I mean, it, it was the literal category that Gartner's and I think also Forrester's defined as encompassing, you know, Salesforce's platform and some of these other platforms that similarly were addressing an enterprise need to build one-off applications that weren't CRM, weren't ERP, but just all these other application needs within the enterprise, right? And ServiceNow, obviously, also in that space and, and kind of has done really, really well over the arc of the past eight years. And so I think like what's really happened in my mind is not that like low code has suddenly appeared, but rather that it's kind of gone mainstream. And in the early days, like eight years ago, if I went to just some random investor or entrepreneur who wasn't already privy to that enterprise category, I think they would have just given you a blank stare if you said the word low code or, or no code, right? And now I think it's it's increasingly a thing. And so it's it feels like more of just like a increasing awareness and, you know, this is not a real word, but mainstreamification of the concept. And that brings us to, I think, like the hype versus substance. I think that, you know, to me, there's a lot of substance to this because what I think of it as really doing is to give people who otherwise would have been occluded from the ability to build useful software value. And software is like the most powerful, probably technology medium ever invented, right? You know, I mean, it's in terms of like the economic potential and also the creative potential of software, I think it ranks up there with literacy, certainly with film and photography, and maybe even like, you know, electricity, et cetera, as one of the most transformative technologies ever in civilization. And to kind of wax poetic a little bit, I think like, Today, if you really want to participate in the creation of value with that software, as opposed to just use software that somebody else has made, I think it's really limited to a very, very, very small few, an elite few who, who happen to know how to program. And obviously, we want to increase that number by introducing programming concepts and computer science into uh, educational curriculums. But I think also, you shouldn't have to go and learn how to write like complicated code just to build something with software. So I think there's just a ton of distributed 
creativity and know-how in the world that's now getting activated and kind of unleashed with these low-code platforms. And so to me, it's almost like it's this potential that's been bursting at the seams. All these people who have ideas about something they could build. I remember having lots of random serendipitous conversations with somebody on an airplane, or maybe you're taking a taxi ride. And like people would have these great ideas for an app of some kind or, or for something they wanted to build in terms of software. And yet it was completely removed from them because they couldn't go and build it themselves necessarily or hire somebody to build it. And so I actually think this is kind of a longer term shift. You know, Satya said, I think on a public earnings call last year, there's going to be 500 million new applications built in the next five years, which outnumbers by far all of the applications that have been built over the past four decades. And I kind of believe it, right? I don't know if it's five years or seven years or 10 years, but I think we're going to get to that soon. And I think it's only going to happen if we kind of create these platforms and tools that really lower the barrier to entry to building useful apps. Yeah, I like that. The idea that as you democratize the ability to build applications and to build and design software tools that are helpful to you, as that happens, it leads to this hyper-specialization and Cambrian explosion of software development. And you might only have applications that are first-party applications built by my team for my company, and maybe it only ever has 50 users on it. But like to those 50 users, it's the most powerful piece of software that's ever existed because it is bespoke by certain particular context. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think it's like, I hate citing the low end disruption concept because I think it's so overused, but this is actually well, maybe one of like the best examples of true Clayton Christensen style disruption, where by massively lowering the barrier to entry and the cost of building an app with Airtable, like as an example, you're never going to build a really complicated, very, very large scale app that serves 50,000, let's say salespeople in a CRM capacity, right? But by massively lowering the effort required to build a useful app in Airtable, you get to serve like this whole new genre of apps that in aggregate we believe is, is just kind of massive in, in scale. And so it's kind of like, peeking underneath the covers and finding like this whole new set of potential apps that could be built that people didn't even fathom because we've always assumed that it's hard and expensive to build an app and you have to go through IT or you have to go and buy something really expensive from uh, some existing enterprise vendor. Now, drilling into some of the specifics of the inside out view from Airtable, you know, we're talking a lot about product here in, in what we're talking about in this part of the conversation. So I'm curious to get sort of a sense from, from your view, what are some of the organizing principles or philosophies that you guys have about product and building product at Airtable? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's hard, right? Because in some sense, not to trivialize the effort of a, a vertical solution company like, you know, say a Procore or like a Viva, but it's it's a different kind of a challenge where I think if you're building a vertical solution, there's a, a little bit more of a straightforward process of go to customers, which all kind of fit within a pretty narrow cluster of, of customer types, whether they're in the construction or the healthcare industry collect their needs, their requirements, and kind of like distill those into product features, right? It's pretty straightforward. I think for us, it's just more complex because we serve all of these different use cases. I mean, literally from cattle farmers managing their inventory and their cattle. There's like an Idaho Farm Bureau op-ed piece about Airtable being used in replacement of some, some vertical software in the domain called CattleMax, but all the way to video producers at very large production studios 
managing production workflows, right? And those two use cases are actually quite distinct. They're distinct in terms of how you set it up in Airtable. They're distinct in terms of what value you receive from it. They're distinct in terms of how the people who actually collaborate on it use it day to day. So in that sense, it's also different from say how Slack gets adopted, where even though they get adopted across lots of different industries, it's kind of the same experience, right? You're kind of using chat, you're using channels. With Airtable, you're actually kind of, it's more of a Lego kit. And each customer, each team is kind of building its own application. And so I think it's like fundamentally hard. In some sense, I think that's kind of like we've shifted the risk of failure from market size. We have great confidence that we can figure it out. There will be a profoundly large market for us waiting on the other side to execution challenge risk, right? Where it's just, it's so much harder to execute that our biggest probably risk of failure is stumbling on our own feet and ending up kind of creating a product that's too convoluted or too specific to any one given use case to generalize. So I think in terms of like a single principle, I think it's really about always thinking of Airtable as a platform, as a Lego kit, and thus resisting the temptation to just like go and reactively build a solution, a feature that serves one particular use case or customer need in kind of a hard-coded, brittle way, right? Where we just kind of kludge some like specific thing into Airtable that solves that problem. We always have to peel it back and say, hey, what's the meta way to do this? What's the way to kind of build this in a more platform-like way where Airtable is still a platform, not an individual solution itself? And so a very concrete example of that is if you're a video producer and you want something really, really hyper-specific to video production, let's say like a unique way of visualizing your video production schedule or of the locations of your film shoots, we would never build that as like a hard-coded feature of Airtable that just comes out of the box, right? Like right-click and there's like a video production view. Instead, we would build a platform abstraction, which we have, to allow you or a third-party developer to go and build that kind of really unique solution value. And so we actually just launched this developer contest. We're doing kind of this preview of, of that developer platform for Airtable, where you can actually build these components onto Airtable. They're hosted on Airtable, and you can actually build a customization directly natively into Airtable that gives you specific functionality like that for a very unique or purpose-built solution. And I can imagine one related challenge to building this horizontal, broad mass market platform that can encompass anybody could be an Airtable user and any use case could technically be addressed by Airtable. And like you said, there's no shortage of TAM when you have such a huge opportunity like that, but it presents challenges in sort of how do you build that platform and not get too specific and, and all of that. But then the, the related challenge that I was referencing is messaging. So with so much diversity in the customer base and in who could get value out of Airtable, how do you communicate what it is so that it's specific enough that somebody knows what to do with it, but not so vague that it's kind of confusing? For sure. Well, I think it's actually a really fun product marketing challenge, you know, insofar as you get to kind of define the product messaging framework on these different layers of abstraction. At the very base, there's kind of the Airtable as platform, Airtable as Lego kit, and why that matters for the world, why you should be able to create software applications where previously there was none. That's kind of like a broader theme that I think applies to all of our different types of customers and also kind of, you know, has this, this societal level relevance, right? But then at the highest level or the most specific levels, I think we also get to play around with getting hyper-specific in terms of Airtable's value and use case applicability. And so we can, for instance, build one-off landing pages for Airtable for construction or Airtable for product management or Airtable for video production. And we can actually tailor the messaging there so that we don't want to 
belie the fact that Airtable is still a platform. You know, we don't ever want to mislead people into thinking, oh, Airtable is just the perfect turnkey pre-built solution for video production. But what we can do is something in between where we kind of show you a template, we show you a use case, maybe case studies for a specific use case or industry, but still kind of communicate that underneath it all is this generalizable platform and that it's actually good for you trying to solve this one particular problem because you can customize Airtable. It's going to grow with your needs. You can adapt it to the specificity of your particular workflow, even within your industry. So every video production company, as we've worked with, with so many of the top ones in, in that industry, has like a different way of managing their productions, right? And the fact that Airtable does allow them to customize their particular setup is a huge, you know, kind of differentiator for us. So I think it's, it's really fun, actually, from a product marketing and go-to-market standpoint of just getting to always play this balance between general messaging, but then also get to go super specific, right? Whether it's on a per customer sales interaction basis, or it's a landing page, or even like, you know, we might start running ads that are specific to one type of industry that we know that Airtable is a really good fit for. In talking about messaging here, I think that's a really great pivot point to to start talking about distribution and how you're getting this into the hands of customers. And so I guess from a starting point, you guys built Airtable as a self-service product within the B2B or sort of enterprise context. Was that a conscious decision or was it kind of a given that you had built something self-service out of the gates? In a way, I think it was necessary to make Airtable a bottoms-up self-serve product if we wanted to win on the product strength of being intuitive enough to kind of be adopted and low-end disruptive across so many more teams, use cases, et cetera, than the existing enterprise incumbents. So in a way, like if we didn't make it bottoms up adopted, then we would be no better off. And in fact, worse off because we wouldn't have had resources or credibility to go up against the existing top-down low-code enterprise platforms. So I think it was kind of table stakes for us to make this product actually good enough, easy enough to use, yet powerful enough to convince end users themselves to invest not just the money, but more importantly, the time and behavioral change effort to go and kind of build on Airtable. So that was that was a pretty foundational assumption. In terms of the B2B point, we always knew that we would be a team-centric product. I mean, we, we spent a lot of time and energy making Airtable collaborative by default. We had to solve some hard technical problems in the earliest days to actually make Airtable the first real-time collaborative relational database product, relational database that anybody could configure to their own needs. So what I mean by that is Google Docs obviously had pioneered this idea of real-time collaboration, but on a simpler data structure. So a Word document in Google is just kind of like a long string of characters. A spreadsheet is basically a 2D array of numbers and text. And it turns out like solving the problem of building real-time collaboration around a more structured relational database model configured by the end user is actually a different and in some ways uh, more challenging problem. And so we invested all this time to make Airtable a team-centric product but in truth, we thought that early on, and this was like, we started the company really in like 2013-ish. And at the time, we thought that in order to get B2B attraction, you first have to start with individual consumer, prosumer use cases. At the time, Slack hadn't existed or hadn't yet launched. And so the best role models we had to look at were Dropbox and Evernote. Evernote was still doing well at the time. And those were both products that kind of started consumer first and then bridged into teams, into enterprise. What we found out after launching and kind of like empirical experience was just that turns out like teams actually adopt this thing better and more virally than the individuals and the consumer, you know, kind of the personal hobbyist organizers did. And so I think if there was a pivot at all in the, the history of the company, it was really just like 
immediately switching gears and saying, hey, we wanted to get here this whole time. And now we have an opportunity to just go directly after those B2B teen-centric bottoms-up use cases right away. Slack started taking off around the time that we launched our product. And so we kind of looked at them too as like validation of this alternate approach. And so we did kind of quickly double down then on really kind of building functionality as well as like positioning the product, building templates and content around those more B2B-oriented use cases pretty quickly. And if I think about the pros and cons of doing self-serve in a B2B or enterprise context, you talked about a lot of the pros there for Airtable, and it makes sense. If you want to have this platform that can serve a huge, diverse set of customers for a bunch of different use cases, having a self-serve product so that folks can actually do that at scale, because if you had to have a salesperson for every use case, just not scalable, doesn't make a lot of sense. So self-service is the way that you do that. So that's kind of some of the pros of self-serve. What do you think is tricky or what what are some of the drawbacks of doing self-serve in a B2B or enterprise context? Yeah, and I think it's interesting because there's kind of these hybrid strategies emerging. I think Slack and Zoom and Dropbox, but lastly as well, increasingly as, as they kind of layer in real sales, have started to hybridize. It's not just bottoms up. Slack early days just wanted to like have people self-serve into the product, pay with a credit card. I think they were a little bit reticent to do any kind of like real traditional sales. And I think now they they do an increasingly great job of actually doing more like top-down sales where they frame the value of Slack to a customer directly and, and immediately and then get them to adopt it kind of in one fell swoop. So, you know, I don't think it has to be like this complete binary trade-off. And I think a lot of what we're doing is to figure out how to leverage the best parts of our bottoms-up adoption model. You know, we get this compounding growth because of the bottoms-up adoption model where the active users of Airtable get more active users both by inviting them directly into the product, but also just by telling other people about it word of mouth. And that's a really, really important viral loop that we want to continue to double down on and perpetuate. But at the same time, I think we can kind of elegantly insert the sales motion into that flow. And it's not just about extracting revenue from these customers with sales. It's also about adding value. And I I really mean that in the sense of, I think for Airtable, especially even more so than the aforementioned products, there's real value to like consulting with somebody and understanding like what, you know, how do I get the most out of Airtable or what is like kind of actually the value of Airtable to my enterprise on a bigger level than just for my individual team and, and what I've built here. And so it's been fun to really kind of like experiment and take a first principles approach to figuring out what are the right balances of human intervention and more traditional sales into the the loop of the bottoms up growth engine. But we definitely don't want to just do one or the other or forgo the bottoms up model entirely to try to do like a completely different thing. Now, you referenced some of the way that you generate top of funnel there. There's a ton of word of mouth. There's a ton of virality that bring users to you. And as you mentioned, one user begets more users and things like that. I'm curious, as those users start to come through the funnel, There's a lot of product effort and there's some human effort to convert and help them through their journey. Now, I know that Airtable has a quote-unquote growth team, and that is obviously a nebulous term. It means something different in every different company. But I'm curious, from your perspective, what does a growth team mean to you guys and why did you choose to have one? Sure. Well, I mean, first off, I think we are definitely going to continue evolving how our product team is structured, right? And so like every team is kind of in a way like constantly evolving and changing. And we're learning the answer to that question. Like what is growth versus isn't the whole product team really about driving growth through building better functionality that helps unlock 
more value for creators and therefore attracts more of them, helps more of them succeed and helps more of them build awesome things that yet inspire even more creators. So in a sense, like I think every part of the product team should be helping in the long term to drive growth. I think maybe where the distinction can fall of like what actually gets called quote unquote growth team is maybe in the time horizon on which they're making bets. And I think that for instance, like the bet that we're making with the platform and kind of giving people the ability to build on Airtable, build an ecosystem around that. I mean, that should hopefully drive profound amounts of growth over the next five to 10 years. As we really build this ecosystem, I think another company as an example, that's done a really great job of using platform to drive growth, I think is Shopify. Just all of the ecosystem add-on that you can get out through their platform actually unlock new verticals, new categories of e-commerce for their platform. So I think certainly like we hope to drive a lot of growth with a lot of our platform efforts in the long term, but the growth team as is titled, I think is more responsible for the nearer term and intentionally more incremental, but compounding wins that you can get doing a much more like empirically driven, try something, test it. You obviously want like a cogent philosophy of what's going to improve growth. So you don't just want to throw stuff on the wall and see what sticks. But I do think you can get away with like a little bit more rapid experimentation and without certainty of whether a given bet will pay off which is a little bit different from like the longer term initiatives where, you know, if you spend three years building a platform and it doesn't pay off, that's probably not very good. And I want to double back to something that you had referenced before when we were talking about self-serve and, and all of that. So the idea of having a sales team and when does the sales team take the handoff from the growth team and when do the humans get involved in a self-service funnel? And it's, it's kind of one of the age-old challenges in, in growth and in go-to-market. So how for you guys, what's your view of sales and what does sales look like at Airtable? How is that different or similar to traditional models? Sure. Well, I mean, I think a lot of it actually begins with the cultural basis and kind of precedent for each of these teams. And what I mean by that is, to me, culture isn't something that's just kind of soft and fluffy and nebulous. It's very real. Culture is the behaviors, the motivations, and incentives that ultimately enable somebody to be successful within the company, right? It's what they actually do and it's like how they do it. And it's what drives the outcomes that you want. And culturally, I think what we've really been intentional to define first and foremost is that we're all one team. So I think there's an arguable benefit at some companies where you have some amount of like competition between different teams and, you know, maybe the growth team, the self-serve monetization team is kind of competing against the sales team. But we've really tried to avoid the sense of who can kind of win this zero-sum game to take more of the revenue from our opportunity base and really, I mean, put the emphasis on how do we expand the pie for the entire company. And so things like until recently, we actually didn't have a formal quota program for our reps, right? And even now that we have, we've still put the extreme emphasis on, hey, look, it's not about going and just trying to close as many deals personally as you can. It's really about what's best for the company. And let's think about each customer in terms of like, what's going to ensure their long-term activation and expansion success and price that in and, and kind of think about that as you're thinking about what's the best way to engage with them, whether it's leaving them alone and letting them self-serve into the product or doing a more handheld motion. So I think another way to summarize that is, I think we really try to make every team think about what's actually better from a customer standpoint, what's going to enable the customer to be more successful, especially in the long term, where 
from a financial standpoint, it's rational for us to really optimize for long-term expansion value, just given like it's profoundly more significant than any short-term revenue gain that we can get. Our most successful accounts pay us millions a year in recurring revenue. And every account basically has usually the potential to kind of spread to wall-to-wall within the company. So I think being long-term oriented and, and building a culture around what's best for the company and then trying to codify that with the systems and the incentives that we have is our approach. Now, you mentioned some of the evolution that you've seen in similar peer companies like Slack and how they perhaps started with pure self-service and this is all we're ever going to do and now has much more traditional sales alongside that self-serve model and, and things kind of evolve over time. So I'm curious, as you look at it for Airtable and, and no one has a crystal ball, but what do you think kind of looking forward? Will you consider more traditional sales stuff like outbound prospecting and stuff that looks like traditional sales? Or do you think it's always going to be a hybrid and sort of modified approach given your roots and where you started? Yeah, I mean, we're pretty open-minded about all the different tactics that we can employ. As in, I think there are some companies that at least early on were kind of philosophically opposed to having sales. And we're not one of them. I actually think sales when done really well is actually truly value-add. And I think that our sales culture is extremely consultative. And it's something that I think really does add to the overall value of of our platform that you get to engage with sales. And and when I say sales, I'm also kind of implicitly including all of our other customer facing functions like customer success, which kind of works very closely with our sales team to actually help customers once they're uh, adopting Airtable to actually successfully adopt and kind of expand to new use cases. And so I think we are definitely open to doing outbound. We're not philosophically against it. I just think that right now, there's such a huge opportunity, even in just the daily signups funnel that we have and and kind of maximizing the conversion success of those users. Truth be told, like we'll probably focus more on just scaling up our more consultative, like success and implementation oriented teams to help the massive amount of people who are coming through our existing funnel to convert and to be successful. And probably only once we're close to exhausting that, which is like not at all, like kind of in the near future, which is partly a function of there's so much improvement opportunity in terms of just helping all of these people, these many thousands of people sign up for Airtable every day to better activate, better get value out of Airtable. But it feels like that's kind of a lower hanging fruit for us than necessarily going outbound. But then again, I think it just comes down to, do we foresee a way that we can do outbound really effectively? Is there kind of actually an approach that we can use that that's good for the customer that helps more customers that could benefit from Airtable directly find out about it a faster and better way than if they just kind of slowly waited for a diffusion of word of mouth to reach them? I think it's a really sophisticated way to describe it. And and I certainly see it similarly, which is anytime you have this kind of one size fits all perspective, that really kind of looks a lot like dogma, sales dogma. I hate sales and I will never have sales or enterprise sales is the best and everything should be sold that way. And you have those kind of rigid playbooks and you try to force fit them onto a given model. It just never works. Or if it does work, it's suboptimal. And so I like the, the sort of more first principles way and thoughtful way you described it. It makes a ton of sense to me. It reminds me of just how much of a shift there's been in the venture community and the founder community around this topic, which is in the early days of Airtable, I remember meeting with certain investors and some of the investors who had really kind of cut their teeth on the old enterprise top-down only sales model of the universe just could not be convinced. I mean, I, I really tried to make kind of an earnest appeal to them about this bottoms-up approach and, and why it could work. And, and I think just there were times when I would talk to this was not just one investor, many investors who would just kind of say, look, love your product. I think you've done an incredible job building this product. In some cases, like these conversations were even once we had like 
real notable adoption, right? And we could show these like really powerful use cases that our customers were building on Airtable, basically showing case studies of that. And yet, despite all that, some of them would just kind of say, well, but like, you're not going to succeed. You're not going to be able to basically grow revenue in any substantial way until you just switch over entirely to like the real way to kind of grow revenue, which is a top-down, very traditional sales sales motion. There's like the Salesforce mechanics of you need to just hire a bunch of SDRs and build up a pipeline, you know, and mine those with AEs and, and so on. And I don't think that's completely incorrect. I mean, again, like you can take some best parts of that traditional sales process and layer them in elegantly into kind of this bottoms-up mechanic, but you want to combine them and you want to leverage the best of the bottoms up model as well. So I remember yourself being very oriented around this new approach. I think now probably there's more and more investors who do kind of get, I mean, almost out of necessity, you have to like understand or, or you know, kind of follow the new bottoms up approach. But at the time, and, and certainly like years ago, I think that was kind of more leading edge or cutting edge perspective. And probably a lot of investors, as I'm sure you observed around you, were not thinking in this way. Well, it's kind of even why we came up with the term product-led growth is because we kind of realized that while this was happening out there, it was kind of the exception and not the rule, but the trend was very much going in this direction where more and more companies were starting with this bottom-up approach. But until something has a name and until there's kind of a movement behind it, it's a bit ethereal and vague. And so it's been cool to see the way that there's been more structured thinking coming around this idea of bottoms up or product-led growth or, or whatever it may be. Yeah, I and mean, it's like by the time you have the multi-deca billion dollar successes of Shopify, Zoom, Slack, Atlassian, et cetera, that have like definitively proven this is a real way to scale go-to-market, I think it's, it's kind of until those very, very indisputable successes, I think, existed at the scale that, that they did, I think it was hard for people to really switch the mentality. Well, now I think every exciting, frankly, SaaS company, I think has to be considering this as at least a mechanic to consider if appropriate. Well, Howie, I guess zooming back out, and if I could ask you a final question here before we wrap up the episode, what's the, the long-term vision for Airtable and what should we be watching for? Yeah, I mean, I think, look, we've never wanted to, to kind of go and just build like a productivity tool or project management tool. I wouldn't even be happy if we ended up just being the spiritual successor to Microsoft Excel, even though that would be a huge, huge market opportunity. What we've always wanted to do is to empower as many people in the world to become creators and to build deep things, deep value with Airtable, to create this new, real medium for them to build. And so I think what you'll see over the, the coming years is for a product to evolve in ways that don't just increment value. It's not just going to be a feature here, a feature there. We're actually going to have some like major unlocks of what you can do with Airtable. And kind of the near-term example is opening up the platform to allow people to actually build custom components, real custom applications on top of Airtable using a mix of code and non-code. But more things like that, that actually kind of really open up what you can do with the product, I think, are in our primary focus. Well, Howie, this has been great. Really appreciate you coming on the podcast to share your thoughts on all things product and product-led growth. So thanks so much. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me, Blake. Thanks for listening to this episode of Build. If you liked what you've heard, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe for new episodes that drop each week. Follow me, Blake Bartlett, on LinkedIn for daily product-led growth content and let me know what you think about the show. Join me this season on Build as we figure out the new customer journey and what comes next in product-led growth. One thing is for sure, all of us in the product-led community are in this together.